The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. If you need a catechism, I have a bunch, and they're in a box right there, and then there are some on the back table as well. Feel free to grab one. Uh, We give these catechisms away because, uh, well, for one thing, it just feels wrong to charge for them, but uh, for for another, it just seems like... uh, like we've had so many, we have a lot of students who are like, I, you know, 20 bucks is a lot of money, and it's like, well, okay, just take it, you know, it's no big deal. Um, also, uh, uh, well, we get such a significant discount through buying in bulk that it's like, if you go on Amazon, you're going to get charged an arm and a leg, and, and you never know what's going to happen there, but uh, please, uh, you know, just get one, because uh, I'd rather people have one and be able to read it and study it than uh, not have one. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the, the Apostles' Creed as the rule of faith, uh, and we're going to continue on in this section. Uh, we're, we'll begin with question 25. Uh, and the, the basic thing that we look at when we look at Holy Scripture is, and the reason we look at it is, that all the creeds are uh, based in Holy Scripture and our faithful representations of uh, biblical doctrine. Um, now, for many of you, uh, being in a church with creeds, where creeds are said uh, and recited, is a new thing. And uh, I want to kind of calm your fears about that, if you have fears about that, um, and simply state that Christians have been using creeds for a long, long time. In fact, the New Testament uh, scholars tell us that some of the kind of statements that are, prevalent, that are present in the New Testament are creedal statements. Um, uh, they're, they're kind of proto-creeds in a sense. Uh, and, and you can think about why this would be, right? Um, consider you'd be a first century Christian and someone say, give me, a, give me a succinct statement of Christian believing. And what would you say? Well, we believe in God. And, and you know, it's just very simple, right? Um, and uh, these things came about actually quite early. There were, there were uh, some of the material that winds up becoming the Apostles' Creed is as early as, you know, the late first century, early second century. Um, we have now documents like uh, the Canon of Hippolytus, which basically lay a lot of that stuff out. And that's, you know, that's a late first century document. Um, so a lot of this is very early, and, and a lot of the reason for that is, um, is, well, it's two reasons. Remember, the purpose of creed is, is to declare and safeguard. So not only is it necessary to state clearly what we believe as Christians, it's also necessary to safeguard that teaching. Um, and you might say, well, why would that be? And, and the answer is, there have always been those who have attempted to, uh, to undermine a Christian teaching both within and without the church. So you have uh, uh, a long history of, and you know, I, I, it's sort of funny when people say, oh, these are tough times for the church these days. And look, it's always been tough, right? Uh, <laughs> it's always, always, always been tough. Um, and, uh, and there have always been uh, doctrinal foes to, to face. Um, even in the New Testament, we see that there are uh, uh, those who have come to undermine the faith, and Paul, Paul speaks about them and writes about them. Um, there are uh, all manner of uh, those who, who have a different gospel. Um, and, and the creed, in many ways, uh, is there to safeguard that gospel. 
um, from error. Um, and you might say, well, how do we know what error is? And then the answer is, from Scripture, right? And not just from Scripture, but from reading Scripture in this living uh, tradition of reading. Uh, and we're going to say more, I'll say more about that. Um, but it's, it's not just that. It's that there, there actually is, I know this is going to shock a lot of people, but there actually is such a thing as Christian orthodoxy. Um, and, uh, and, um, and it's not just that, see, part of the problem we have today is that people will say, well, well my read of Scripture is this. And they'll be saying, well, blah, 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 my read of Scripture is this, or my theology is this. And it's like, look, that, that it just doesn't fit with, with, with how Christians have believed. Um, normally, uh, in, in, throughout Christian history, uh, you were sort of given the faith as a gift uh, that you were supposed to hold on to, and, and not just hold on to, but spread, and um, uh, keep um, so some of the language in the, in the Apostles' Creed, for instance, uh, uh, the fathers talk about how the, the creed is handed to you, like as part of the tradition, um, for you to hand it back to the church. So you hold it as this possession, but you hold it loosely is the idea. Um, so with that, let's, let's start moving. We're going to kind of move through the first two questions really quickly because we got to them last, last week, or the first three actually. What is Holy Scripture? Holy Scripture is God's Word written, given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and His acts in human history, and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Um, Holy Scripture is God's Word written. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, you pick up a Bible and you know that it's written, right? But how do you know it's God's Word? It's <laughs> a really lovely question. How do you know? Well, there are lots of ways, and I'll talk about them, but the, the, uh, the Old Testament is actually pretty easy, right? The Old Testament as we have it is pretty much the Jewish Scriptures, right, um, as, as they would have been held by, uh, really, well, we have to be clear about this, uh, by, by the kind of Jew, Judaism that Jesus himself came out of, right? Um, not, the, not the Judaism of the scribes or the priests, because that's actually like just, just the first five books, but this kind of… Um, Actually, you know, it's, it's the Judaism of the Pharisees, actually, that, that, uh, that Jesus, you know, he, he has his canon, and that's it. Um, and so the ancient church's canon was definitely uh, the, the Judaism of Pharisees when it came to the Old Testament. Um, and they believed that it was God's Word written. Um, and then you have the apostolic writings and the, and the Gospels as well. And uh, the, the church determines through a number of, of ways, but basically by the time you hit uh, the mid-fourth century, there's a pretty much universal canon of the New Testament. Um, that's, get this, that's concurrent with the appearance of uh, universal creeds, namely the Apostles' Creed and the, and the Nicene Creed. Um, so all of that comes about in the same time. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of misunderstanding that often happens here where, where people will say, oh, that's when Christians like made up Christianity, right? Oh, obviously. I mean, they didn't have it until the fourth century. It's like, hold up, right? <laughs> uh, you can read the writings of ancient church fathers, first, second, third century, and there's great continuity. Um, what was not possible prior to the fourth century was uh, sort of large meetings of Christians coming from all over the country, all over the world. Why? because it was an underground movement. It was an underground church. Um, they didn't let their writings get out very easily. Um, they didn't do that. Um, they weren't able to publish uh, in, the, in, that, in the way that we would today. Um, so it's a, quite an important thing that, to keep in mind. Uh, and so there is actually great continuity there. Um, and, 
and what's interesting about the, the pre-Nicene fathers, as we call them, uh, is that they, they proclaim the faith as the faith of the apostles. And where do you find that? In Scripture, right? So in, in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul, in the writings, you know, in the Gospels. Um, so this is all very, very keen, uh, very, you know, very important understanding given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles. So, prophets being Old Testament, apostles being what? New Testament. I mean, this is really clear. Uh, as the revelation of God and His acts in human history, and is therefore, okay, so it's on that basis of, of the, the status of Holy Scripture that it is the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. So, uh, we as uh, Anglican Christians hold this very strongly, which is that the final authority is not uh, some guy so this is important, right? It's not some guy uh, who happens to be the bishop of some diocese, right? Uh, and and you, can, you can extrapolate that out as much as you want. Uh, or me, right? So get this straight, right? This does not read, I am the final authority on all matters. And, and it doesn't even read, my reading of Scripture is not the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Um, the Holy Scripture itself is the church's final authority. Now, Obviously, Scripture has to be interpreted. Obviously, Scripture has to be read. I'm going to say more about that as we go forward. But for now, it's enough to simply say that, that Scripture is, is sufficient uh, for uh, the right ordering of the church in terms of faith and practice. Um, so, what books are contained in Holy Scripture? The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament together form the whole of Holy Scripture. Um, so, there you have that. Uh, 39 and 27. Uh, I... I happen to just love this because it's like, it's just these, these you know, numbers are really important and you can sort of remember a number and you can say, oh yes, how many books, I love this for little kids. If you're ever, you know, having to teach a little kid, you can say, how many books are in the Old Testament? I'll say 39. <laughs> oh, you're very smart. You, know, and you just sort of teach them this um, and, uh, and it's great fun. Uh, but, but again, this goes back to this, that this is the canon, right? Just as it was in the ancient church. Now, We'll say more about the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books later, but for now it's enough to say that, that the canon of this uh, Holy Scripture, which is the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice, is the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, and that's full stop. Okay. What is in the Old Testament? The Old Testament proclaims God's creation of all things, mankind's original disobedience, God's calling of Israel to be His people, his law, wisdom, and saving deeds, and the teaching of his prophets. The, Holy, the Old Testament bears witness to Christ, revealing God's intention to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. Okay, so we not only hold that, that the Old Testament contains the record which anyone can see and read for themselves, you just want to read through it. It's like, okay, we got man's original disobedience, we've got God's calling of Israel to be his people, we've got law, wisdom, the Psalms, all these things. Um, we have all this story, we have the stories of uh, of uh, going into Egypt, we have the stories of the Babylonian exile, we have the stories of building the temple, we have the stories of the kings, we've got all that stuff, right? The divided Israel, all of that. But what we also have in the Old Testament, and we claim this rather strongly, is uh, this witness to Christ, uh, revealing God's intention to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. Well, how do we know this? Read the New Testament, right? The New Testament makes constant reference to the Old Testament. Um, and, and you know, you, you can actually just hear this in Paul. It's like he, has, he, is, he is one who searched the Scriptures his whole life, 
right? And when he meets the risen Christ on the roads of Damascus, um, you know, there, there's one scholar, and I don't agree with him, but he says that, you know, in this, in this conversion moment, because he's so familiar with the Old Testament, all he needs to know, he's got right there in this conversion. I don't think that's true. But it's an interesting idea because it says, well, he had, he had known this from the Old Testament. Um, and of course, the question would be, well, if he had known it, you know, why didn't he do it? You know, but that's another question for another time. Uh, it's clear enough to me that, uh, that the ancient church believed that they were, uh, they were experiencing the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ. Now, that's a really unpopular position with, uh, with our modern-day scholars, most of them coming out of German uh, traditions of, well, not even traditions, German uh, persuasions of, uh, and I don't want to throw Germans under the bus because they're not all like this, but uh, there was a school of uh, biblical interpretation in the in 19th century that, that essentially said, you know, cast doubt on all of that stuff. That's a bunch of uh, kind of mystical stuff, and we should really look for more... Uh, empiricistic, empirically verifiable things, right, uh, in terms of reading Scripture. The problem is that um, Christians have always read Scripture in terms of an allegory to point us to Christ, and that's the Old Testament in particular, um, but have also sort of seen this sort of, um, have seen that the gospel is sort of shrouded in the mystery of the Old Testament, um, and there are lots of ways that that happens. Um, give you my favorite story, right? Uh, in, in, um, in the accounts of David, there's the story of his son Absalom. Yeah? Do you remember this? Right? Absalom is what? He's a bad seed, and he has, he has decided that he's going to rebel against his own father and raise an army and try to take over the kingdom. Uh, being king was uh, not a pleasant business back then because you had to defend the kingdom against all your, your warring sons. Uh, but David uh, uh, is, one of, the, one of the things I just love about David as a character is he's always, like, totally magnanimous to his worst enemies, right? Like, he weeps for the death of Saul, who tried to kill him, like, many times over. Um, he, uh, he weeps for the death of his enemies. He really does. Um, and so, uh, this, the story goes that um, Absalom winds up getting killed. How does he get killed? Well, he gets hung up in a tree as he's riding along. This happens, you know. I, I've never, I can't ride horses because I'm allergic to them, but apparently this happens a lot in history because it's how a lot, a lot of people have died. He, he uh, gets caught up in a tree because this horse goes a little wild, and then uh, this warrior comes along working for David and, and uh, casts a spear right through his heart and comes back, and David says, is, he, is it well with the young man Absalom? And uh, and uh, the news is out, um, basically, that he's been killed. Um, and David weeps for his son. Well, his son's what? Hanging in a tree, a spear through his side, right? I mean, all of this is like so Christological, you, can, if, if you, you just can't miss it, right? Um, now, and David weeps for his own son, um, this, this rebellious son. Now, is Jesus Christ a rebellious son? Well, don't be so quick, right? I mean, Paul says he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might be what? The righteousness of God. So we see this, the righteousness of David contrasted with the rebelliousness of his son um, who hangs in a tree. He's cursed. 
Um, and, and you see the gospel, right? You see it right there. Uh, so a lot of this is, is uh, and it shows up all the time, right? I mean, think about it. Jonah in the belly of a whale for three days, okay? What is this? Jesus even says this, right? Uh, this is the sign which will be given to this generation, this unbelieving generation. What? Uh, well, this death and resurrection. He's in the, he's in the belly of death in the, in the tomb uh, for three days and rises again. Um, so all of this is there, and, and uh, there's a really wonderful quote from St. Augustine that will come later, but uh, we'll get there. What is in the New Testament? The New Testament proclaims Jesus Christ's life, birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, the church's early ministry, the teaching of the apostles, the revelation of Christ's eternal kingdom, and the promise of His return. So all this is rather straightforward. You know, it contains the whole life of Christ, uh, but also, and I think this is an important point, um, contains the record of the, the church's early ministry, the teaching of the apostles, the revelation of Christ's eternal kingdom, and the promise of His return. Um, that should actually tell you something, which is what? Are the words in red more the Word of God than the words in black? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? You still have these Bibles, you know, these words in red Bibles, right? Uh, you know, look, there's a group of Christians that call themselves red-letter Christians because they say, well, all we need is the Word of Jesus. Like, all the rest is extraneous. Well, no, it's not. And you should be able to figure out why. Right? Because the Gospels are actually the church's testimony to Jesus Christ. Right? Um, and so, uh, so the New Testament is weighted equally across the board. That's really important. Um, so anytime there's this kind of temptation to say, well, I like Jesus, but, you know, I don't really like his church. Or I don't really like what they've done with all this. You know, I'd rather, rather just get back to the, to the basics, right? Um, here's the problem. I remember Rick Warren one time giving a talk that I, that I absolutely loved. And I'm not a, you know, typical Rick Warren fan, but sometimes he says some things that are really dead on. And he said, you know, this is a bit like me coming up to you and saying, I love you, but your wife... Right, uh, it's like you trying to offend me, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, that's that's the problem, right? Uh, is that that uh, you know there's such a tightness between Christ and His Church, His body, uh, that that the revelation which is contained in both actually is is uni- is is unified in that sense, um, and that's that's actually what the New Testament says, right? Which is what Peter Paul says this: that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the faith. Okay. Um, that's pretty strong language. Um, the church is built upon the, upon the foundation, the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. All right. How are the Old and New Testaments related to each other? The Old Testament is to be read in the light of Christ, and the New Testament is to be read in the light of God's revelation to Israel. Thus, the two form one Holy Scripture, which reveals the person of Jesus Christ and His mighty works. As St. Augustine says, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Okay, so I love that quote from St. Augustine, uh, and uh, I've loved it so much that I decided to put it in the catechism. So there it is. <laughs> and I'm so pleased that the, that the bishops decided that that should stay because they, they took a lot of other things out. But uh, that's one that I just have really loved um, because it's such, a, it's such a good way to look at it, right? Um, and you'll notice this at Christ Church. Look, we don't have Sunday mornings where we don't read the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament every Sunday, right? Actually, no, that's not true. In Easter, we don't because we read, we read the Acts of the Apostles, um, long, long-standing tradition. Uh, but, yeah, I should definitely take that back. 
Uh, but for the most part, we read the Old Testament every single day, right? And in the daily office, read the Old Testament every day, sometimes twice a day. Um, and the reason is that uh, we, all of us have this little heretic named Marcion inside of us, and Marcion says, well, Marcion the Martian, he says that, uh, that you know, the Old Testament is, is, uh, is, is basically evil, and it contains, you know, all this information about an evil God who just wants to kill you, and uh, the gospel is about a God who wants you to live, and so the two are diametrically opposed and can't possibly be the same God. Um, and so he rips through and deletes all the Old Testament references, even the New Testament. Um, but we all have this impulse inside of us, right? It's to say, oh, we got to get rid of the God of the Old Testament. He's, he's, he's mean and nasty, and we don't want him, right? Uh, but here's, here's the thing that Christians have always said. <laughs> They've always said, like, no, 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 you have to have, you have, to have it all, um, because there actually is a harmoniousness to it. I think this is actually the right way to view it, um, and it, it guards against some really big theological problems. Um, one of them is this problem of, um, of supersessionism, this idea that basically the old, the old Testament and the witness of God, the witness to God in the Old Testament is superseded by that of the New Testament, um, or that the church has sort of superseded Israel. Um, that's not the language that Paul uses. Actually, Paul uses the language of being grafted into the wild rootstock of Israel. So, to be a Christian is to be one who is, who is wild, right, a wild Gentile who has been grafted into the, 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 uh, the, the olive tree that is Israel, right? That's, that's, the, that's the language he uses. Um, and that's much better, that's much better language. Um, now, of course, there are multiple problems with this. One is that, uh, well, Christians were cast out of the synagogues in the late first century, so that kind of causes some issues. But it still stands that uh, ancient Christianity has an, uh, an undeniable Jewish character, character to it. In fact, all Christianity has an undeniable Jewish character to it, and it's shown right here, Sunday after Sunday. What do we do? It's the very first thing we do after we pray a little bit. We have readings, right? Like, and we know from the New Testament, which, by the way, is one of the most clear uh, 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 historical documents regarding what Judaism was like in the first century, okay? Uh, there were readings in the synagogues, right? Jesus gets up, he asks for a text, they hand it to him, he reads it. Like, this is a normal part of life in the synagogue. It still is today. Um, what else? happens here every Sunday. The Eucharist is a carryover of, of Jewish ritual meal, right? Um, this drinking of wine and eating of bread is very normal uh, in Judaism. It still is today, right? Um, uh, if you've ever been to a Jewish Seder meal, like, it's, there, there, are, there are prayers over the cup of wine in front of the host of the meal, right? Prayers over the bread that's broken, um, so all of this is to say that, that there is carryover here, and it's really important. Um, but, and we can say a lot more about this, you know, the question of, of Israel's current status, right? What is that? Um, but, but I will say this. I, I actually believe, um, I'm not a Zionist, but I do say strongly that, um, that a thriving Jewish witness actually is, um, in many ways, and in, and in most ways, uh, essential to a thriving Christian witness. It's just simply to say that, um, you know, if, uh, if, uh, 
if Judaism just sort of ceased to exist tomorrow, um, we would all be harmed by that, all of us, no doubt, um, in ways that are, that are deep, right? Um, because it's an understanding of like, well, these are God's people, right? They're God's people. And, uh, and, and Paul, you know, just, just read the very end of the letter to the Romans. He desires that they be saved. Um, and he believes they are God's people. Um, but, uh, but, it, but this is, a, this is just to say for right now that uh, Scripture uh, contains both in the same uh, canon. And, and that actually tells us something really important about, about the nature of Christian believing. Okay, shall we go forward? What does it mean that Holy Scripture is inspired? Holy Scripture is God's God-breathed, for the biblical authors wrote under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit to record God's Word. All right, I love, I love how this uh, shakes out. Um, Paul writes to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, um, and the word that he uses is, um, is the word for breath, <sighs> like that. <laughs> Um, and all of these words are related to each other, and one of my favorite things to read on this is Owen Barfield has this wonderful you know, little bit about how it is that, um, by the way, Owen Barfield was like C.S. Lewis's lawyer friend, essentially, um, and, and about how these words are related, right? Um, so, for instance, I have a garage, and you may have seen my garage. Hopefully, you will at some point. It's, it's a little wild. It's messy right now, but I have pneumatic tools in my garage, What's a pneumatic tool? It's air-powered, right? You go to the dentist and you get your teeth drilled. How's that, how's that drill run? It runs at a really high speed. It's, inc- it's incredible. It's, it's pneumatic. It runs on air. Um, so this is to say that the power behind the Holy Scriptures is the power of the Holy Spirit, actually. Um, it's God-breathed. Um, and this is why, in English, we have a lot of these wonderful words, like inspired right? Well, that's not incidental. It's actually something like onomatopoeia for what inspired sounds like. It's like what happens when you slash somebody's tires, right? Which I hope you don't do that. Uh, but, but, but it's that sound, right? It's the sound of an air you can't see, but you can, you can hear it, right? Um, and so it's inspired, right? Spirit. Spirit has that, also that, that kind of sound there. Um, so this is, what, this is what Paul is saying when he says that all Scripture is God-breathed. All right, what does it mean that Holy Scripture is the Word of God? The Old and New Testaments are inspired by the Holy Spirit and are therefore the Word of God written. God is revealed in His mighty works and in the incarnation of our Lord, which are made known through the inspired writings of the biblical authors. God has spoken through the prophets and continues to speak through Scripture today. All right, so... Um, I just want to put a little bit of emphasis on that, uh, that God is made known through the prophets uh, or to the prophets by His Holy Spirit. Uh, God is revealed in His mighty works and in the incarnation of our Lord. Um, I love what uh, St. John of the Cross says about this, um, that in one word, which is Jesus, God has spoken all words and He has no more to say, <laughs> right? Which I love that. It's like, that's that's awesome, right? Uh, it's, it's just to say that there is no revelation beyond that of Jesus Christ, um, of God. That's the, the final revelation of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and you might say, well, why do we have more revelation in the Holy Scripture? It's like, because, surprise, surprise, what does the New Testament, who does the New Testament testify to? Jesus Christ. 
So, so that's that's the that's the reason that that's there, um, and so they testify to this to the incarnate Lord. Um, and these are made known by the inspired writings of the biblical authors. God has spoken through the prophets, um, and continues to speak through Scripture today. And I would say He not only speaks through the prophets, but also speaks through the apostles. Um, it'd be a good time here also to, to just say a word about um, how it is that we have these 27 books in the New Testament um, contained in Bibles today, uh, and why we don't have other things. Um, and the big reason, actually, is, is this. Uh, well, there are several big reasons, and I'll just sort of give them to you um, in no particular order. But the first is this, that all, all, with the exception of texts that, are, um, that don't actually say who the author is, um, so we have to sort of guess at it. Uh, all of them claim to be apostolic texts, um, and we actually know that they must be from the first century, so therefore apostolic in that sense, right? Um, so all of those texts basically wind up in the New Testament, those that claim to be apostolic. Now, there are others that um, don't make it into the canon, and there are a lot of reasons for that. One is they don't claim apostolic authorship. Another is that we know that they're not really first century writings. They might be second century writings. Um, another is that, uh, I mean, just imagine how a New Testament text was originally distributed for just a second. Okay? Let's take Ephesians, for example. Um, the letter to the Ephesians is a circular letter to the churches of Ephesus, which is not so much a city as it is a region of, of what's now Turkey today. Um, and those letters were circulated, right? They were circular letters. And the idea was this. I'm going to send it through a friend, and a friend's going to take it. The friend is going to say, let's read this to everyone. Okay, so you read it. And then they say, well, make a copy of it, and then send the copy on to, uh, oh, let's just say Pamphylia, okay? So you're going to send the copy to Pamphylia, and then Pamphylia's got a copy. And then Pergamum's got a copy. And then... Uh, Troas has a copy, right? All these cities start to have copies in their churches of these letters. Um, and something happens through that, which is that they all basically become uh, what we would call truly Catholic in the sense that they're universally held by these churches. So that's one big thing is, are they held widely? Um, the other question is, are they read liturgically widely? So one of the things we actually know about the ancient church is that before they bound all these texts together in one Bible, which actually takes an incredible amount of work and uh, technology, they would simply keep the copy from whenever it was, right? Maybe it was first century, maybe it was second century, maybe they wore through one copy and they were like, oh, oh we better make another copy, right? <laughs> uh, uh, and then they file it away in a cabinet. Um, and every church had a kind of, in the fourth century, would have had uh, a kind of bookcase, uh, where they kept all those texts. And, and we know this because there are accounts of, of various church fathers saying, would you bring me the copy of Ephesians? I'd like to preach on Ephesians today. And some, you know, acolyte goes and grabs the, the copy of Ephesians and they read it. Same with the Gospels. They, they bring the Gospel down. Now, of course, that's terribly inconvenient because then you have to have this kind of like lots of text lying around. So eventually we get bound Bibles. Um, doesn't happen right away. It happens because of what's in that case, right? And what happens ultimately is that um, there's such continuity and such universality regarding what's in that case, and it's surprising how much there is uh, by the middle of the fourth century that that becomes the canon, right? Um, so what's there? In fact, we don't actually get one unified New Testament text until we get the Textus Receptus, kind of like, I think it's 
17th century, really. There's like this received Greek text in the New Testament that people start to translate from. Um, but let's just be clear. What you and I know as Scripture is actually the kind of distillation of piles and piles and piles of New Testament texts um, existing in several places in the world, right? Um, and so these are uh, little pieces of papyri. Sometimes they're the size of a quarter, right? <laughs> that, that are layered on top of each other, right? Um, and one of the things you should know about this is that um, unlike some texts, um, even for things like the Odyssey and the Iliad and things like that, we don't have that many texts, not complete ones anyway. For the New Testament, we literally have hundreds of thousands of these things um, all over the place, and they're pretty continuous, actually. So when you read in a Bible, a good study Bible will have some authorities read X. That's what it means is some of these texts actually read with this word instead of this one. Um, and so in terms of, and I know some churches love to say that the Scriptures in their original autographs are authoritative, well, get this. If there are original autographs, we don't have them. Not anymore, right? And you know the reason why. It's like, look, <laughs> I have lots of old books, lots of old books, but I, I don't read them, right? And if I do, I'm going to ruin the copy, and I'll have to get a new one, right? I have, I have one book that I just read all the time. I read it every year, and it's coffee-stained and disgusting, and I'm probably going to replace it, right? So that's the reason, right? So you get all this over time. Um, you know, every church, and I know this, we have to replace our books. We have to replace prayer books. We have to replace our gospel book. We have to replace all this stuff regularly. Um, so that's one of the ways that this happens is that you get this sort of like, oh, we don't have that anymore. Um, the other interesting way that the New Testament canon is formed is this. Um, say that you are like living in the third century and someone comes to sort of raid your church. Like, the Romans are here. Oh, gosh. You know. <laughs> what do you do? It's like your first thing you do hide the treasure, right? So what do you, what do you hide? You hide chalices, you hide, you hide all the kind of Eucharistic vessels, and especially that cabinet full of texts that stays in the church, right? You, you put that away somewhere. Um, and when they say, do you have any holy writings? Like, we're going to burn them. Say, oh yes, we have lots of holy writings. Here, take this from this heretic and this from this heretic. These have been sitting on the shelves for like 20 years and we don't read them anymore, right? That's how it works. Um, it's sort of like, you know, look, if, if somebody came, let's say we fall under persecution and somebody's like, we need all of your, your very important books. It's like, uh, okay, well, here, take this, take this. Like, oh, take the prayer of Jabez, right? Like, remember that? Take purpose-driven life, you know, like, uh, here, take this, you know, like, well, well Why? Because they don't have the kind of provenance that the New Testament has, right? Um, uh, Emma, I hate to call you out on this, but you know this working at Half Price Books, right? Uh, it's, it's like what Mark Twain says, is that, you know, 95% of books should have stayed trees. And ultimately, they will be destroyed and recycled, et cetera, right? So if you don't buy it at Half Price Books, they throw it in a you know, recycling bin and it gets hauled away. Um, that's really important, actually. Those are like really important cultural things to know because that's how you get a New Testament. 
It's not an unimportant thing. Um, in fact, there, you know, there's, there's kind of a wonderful apocryphal story about uh, the kind of uh, the Englishman that sort of discovers the, the library at St. Catherine's Monastery, and he says, oh, these monks, they were burning these texts, you know, in the fireplace to stay warm. Well, that's never happened, and it was just, it was just sort of the excuse he gave for stealing the text and bringing them to the British Library. Um, but uh, today, even today, they will find second and third century texts hidden away somewhere, you know, uh, contained in odd places like, well, think about it like this. So you're going you're gonna to bind up a new book, right, that has all these new texts, and I've just copied all of them in Greek. So what happens to the old ones? Maybe I'll use them in the cover. Like, oh, by the way, papyrus can be stripped of what's on it, and then you can kind of write again on it. And you can actually find out what's there. Um, if you want to know more information about this, I encourage you to talk to Dr. Fish, uh, who works in the, uh, in, in the Baylor Classics Department. He's a papyrologist. He knows more about this than anybody on the planet, basically. Um, and look, if you want to know about how some of these ancient texts are found, he's a part of projects like they'll do MRIs of jars. And using computer software, will unroll scrolls and then read them. So, I mean, this is still stuff that happens today. When you hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was found in a jar in some caves. Um, the little kid was throwing rocks, and he heard it clink against a jar and, you know, open the jar. That was that. Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but we'll, we'll, get, we'll get through it. Why is Jesus Christ called the Word of God? The fullness of God's revelation is found in Jesus Christ, who not only fulfills the Scriptures, but is himself God's Word, the living expression of God's mind. The Scriptures testify about him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Okay, I love that quote from St. Jerome, you know. St. Jerome was the great Latin translator of uh, the Old and New Testaments, very bright guy. Uh, he actually lived in the basement of St. Catherine's Monastery in Bethlehem uh, for, the, for the end of his life, which is a wonderful thing. Um, he, he basically wanted to get so close to the incarnate Word of God uh, by basically living in Bethlehem. And the other reason he wanted to live in Bethlehem was uh, so that he could learn Hebrew. Um, so he basically hung out in Bethlehem, learned Hebrew, and did translations, and he did translation work his whole life, and what we have is the Vulgate, the Latin text of the, of the uh, Old and New Testaments. Um, but he says that ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ, which is to say, how do you come to know Jesus Christ? Through Scripture, right? So um, this should be a challenge to us to really learn Scripture. Um, and, and part of this is that um, I'll say, you know, the current generations, you know, ascendant generations, are about probably 50% biblically literate. I mean, they read Scripture. Um, the problem is they don't understand it. <laughs> and so there's this huge gap between reading and understanding. Uh, there's also a giant gap between knowing Scripture well. Uh, and that comes through not only uh, uh, memorizing certain things, but, uh, but, but really speaking the language of Scripture. Um, and so I, I put a personal emphasis on things uh, in terms of how we teach. Um, to just say, you should learn to speak Scripture. Learn to speak scripturally. That's a really important thing to do. Um, use, use that language that is, that is suffused in the Scriptures. All right. How should Holy Scripture be understood? 
Because Holy Scripture was given by God to the church, it should always be understood in ways that are faithful to its own plain meaning, to its entire teaching, and to the church's historic interpretation. It should be translated, read, taught, and obeyed accordingly. Uh, This is an important uh, question in the Catechism, and it reflects, actually, language that's taken directly out of one of the founding documents of the ACNA, which is the Jerusalem Declaration, which is uh, a document that kind of lays out uh, classical Anglicanism. And I'd say this. Um, We kind of have lots of, lots of, today, right? You get to kind of take your pick of how you're going to read Scripture, right? You can either read it uh, in a way that's just entirely about like, um, hey, I get to decide what Scripture says to me. So that's one way, right? Another way is, well, I might listen to you, but I'm going to listen to myself more. Or I think this one pastor has it absolutely right. He understands better than anybody else, and so I'm just going to listen to him, okay? Happens a lot, right? And look, he might be the Pope, he might be the, the Baptist pastor down the street. We don't know. But the reality of it is that, uh, that there actually is, and I'll just be clear about this, there actually are um, historic interpretations of Scripture. So one of the things the Brothers Fellows are doing and have been doing is some of this question of like, well, what, what, how have Christians read Scripture in the past? Like, how do we do that? Because um, that's a really important question to know, right? Because look, you're not the first one to read Scripture. Like, lots of people have been doing this for a long, long time, and it makes sense to know what they would say. Um, in addition to that, uh, we should say strongly that uh, Scripture should be understood in ways that are faithful to its own plain meaning. Um, I'm with St. Augustine who says that the first way that you read Holy Scripture is literally, okay? It's really important. I want you to hear from me, an Anglican priest, that the very first thing that you should think when you read Scripture is the literal sense. By this, I do not mean literalistic. I mean literal, right? What do the words say? (laughs) Okay, that's it. That's the first meaning of Scripture, okay? Um, And look, I'll say this as well. You cannot build an allegorical reading of Scripture that is not based upon a literal reading because you actually have to read it. Okay? One of the things I find, I really will say, I find a great, great deal of fault in a lot of modern biblical interpreters, and the main reason, and I've got to wrap this up, is that they do something which is really egregious. They don't even bother to read. <laughs> right? They set up and they write these long, you know, documents and long uh, academic arguments. They didn't bother to read the text, right? Um, and so that's a big problem, right? You've got, you've got uh, so-called biblical scholars who don't even know what the text says, right? It's not that they're making an argument that is sort of like overthrowing what Scripture says. No, they just don't know it, right? They don't, they don't understand it because they haven't read it. Um, so that's a big thing uh, just to keep in mind. Um, now, what this means is that, uh, and I should say this as well, um, there are, and this is where I'll, I'll finish up for today because I know that people in the hallway are going to get a little bit upset with me for going too long, uh, but, but there, there are what are called, very cleanly, consensual readings of Scripture. And, and by this I mean this, that there's this understanding in the ancient church that's still around, still prevalent today, called the consensus fidelium, right? It's this understanding of the faithful have a consensus, a vast consensus, as to the meaning of Holy Scripture. And we should probably find out what that is, 
right? Um, and, and not only that, but become a part of that consenting body, right? This idea of we, uh, we give our consent and our assent to Scripture in that way. Um, what this means is that you, you know, look, first, novel interpretations of Scripture that are yours and yours alone that you just sort of came up, up with as you were, you know, kind of hanging out in a hammock or something are right out, right? And the second thing is, they're probably not as novel as you think they are because someone's definitely thought that before, right? Um, so, for instance, when we read in, in uh, Colossians that, you know, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, we say, oh, that means that Jesus has a beginning, right? Or he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That means that he has a beginning, yes? That he's not eternal in both directions, maybe. You think? Look, you're not the first one to get confused, okay? You're not at all. Uh, What's the right reading there? Alpha and omega means without time. That's what it means, okay? What does firstborn mean? That Jesus Christ is the heir of all creation. Um, you misread it, right? And you also, get this, you misread it in its literal sense, okay? So I want, you to be, I want to be really clear about that. That's really important. Um, I'll leave you with a story. Um, when I was first ordained, I was I was preaching more than I'd ever preached before in my life, and I sat down with my, with my mentor who was a, um, he had a PhD in, in all things from Oxford, and uh, he was ridiculously bright. And I said, he's like, how's it going? How's, how's preaching going? And I said, it's really a giant burden. And he said, why? So well, I'm always afraid I'm gonna say something wrong. Like, I'm afraid that I'm gonna like commit heresy in the pulpit. And he said, well, I wouldn't worry about that. I said, why not? You're not smart enough. <laughs> so, so I just said, thank you. <laughs> well, what's the point? The point is that, uh, that uh, look, we should be rather dumb, right, when we, when we read Scripture. We shouldn't think we're very smart um, because, because we're really not. Um, and so these, uh, these kind of novel interpretations or new interpretations or, you know, no one is smart enough to come up with new stuff, right? Um, it's all been addressed before. Um, and I would say as well that, uh, that, that the most important thing when you're reading Scripture is to receive it, right? Let Scripture judge you. Um, that's, that's really the way to go. Um, so we'll, we'll pick up next week. Thank you.